Welcome to Inspiring Minds, powered by the Edison Awards, showcasing the leading innovators from across the globe. I'm your host, Jennifer Trammell. Slow down for a minute. Take a deep breath. Take your right hand and place it over your heart. Feel that? The steady beat as the right side of your heart receives oxygen-poor blood from your veins and pumps it into your lungs, where the blood picks up oxygen and gets rid of carbon dioxide. Then, the left side of your heart receives oxygen-rich blood from your lungs and pumps it through your arteries to the rest of your body. 100,000 times in a day, about 35 million times in a year. But sometimes things go wrong, interrupting this steady drum. Around the world, cardiovascular diseases are the leading cause of death, most due to heart attack and stroke. And the main cause of that, cardiac arrhythmias. That's when there's improper beating of the heart. The heartbeat might be irregular, too fast, or too slow. This happens when electrical impulses in the heart don't work properly. When doctors go in to fix cardiac arrhythmias, they've relied on two-dimensional models and waveforms. Until now, CENTAR developed an augmented reality hologram to use in surgery giving doctors more information about how the electrical signal travels across the surface of the heart so they can target the exact spot to stop the arrhythmias. While the technology was there, its execution required some changes. That's where HS Design came in. Tor Alden is the Global Vice President of Design and Development, and he's here to help us understand this exciting technology and what it means for patients. As Tor mentioned, the complexity of arrhythmia procedures with typical modeling leads to inaccuracy and inefficiency. Only 60% of procedures are successful the first time, which puts patients at even more risk as they undergo additional surgery. Current estimates show that using the CENTAR system can result in 50% more accurate ablations and reduce repeat ablations at one year by 25%. The Senti AR system can save institutions that utilize it more than $1,200 per procedure. And the impacts go beyond treating cardiac arrhythmias. Senti AR is one of the first successful incorporations of augmented reality within the healthcare field. And that opens new doors for future medical design solutions via digital experiences. Tor, welcome to Inspiring Minds. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And congratulations to you and the team on your Silver Edison Award. Well, thank you very much. It's quite an honor, quite humble. Let me ask a little bit first about that Edison Award and what it means to you and the team. As a product development firm, we, we submit uh, to a lot of awards and, and CENTIAR uh, was actually uh, won multiple awards uh, for, for its work. Uh, it won the International Design Excellence Award. It won a Resi Award. Uh, but I think, you know, winning the Edison was really um, sort of the milestone or, or the capstone, if you will, of, of, of how we thought this would all culminate. Um, 
you know, both CENTIAR and HSD collaborated very closely, worked really hard on, on it, and it was just really special to get recognition at that level. So, well, congratulations. So. And we're going to talk a lot more about Senti AR. But first, I wanted to introduce our audience to the idea of human-centered design methodology, because this is so fundamental to the work that you and your team do at HS Design. So will you define that for us and kind of walk through what it means? Sure. Uh, I mean, human-centered design methodology, it, it, it's, there are several ways to put it. Some, some people call it user-centered, some call it user-driven. Uh, even design thinking is a, is a sort of a buzzword these days about how to how to uh, look at a project. But basically, it's it's really about approaching a project with the understanding that the user's persona and the environment are mixed together, and that you have to really understand the context of use that the user is working in, the type of user, the type of environment. So, is it a knowledgeable end user, like a surgeon or a doctor? Uh, or is it a, a, a layperson that uh, has to use the product without much instructions for use? What's, what's the context of the environment that they're in? Are they relaxed or are they stressed? Is it an emergency situation, a lot of things going on, or, or is it a very dedicated use? So, you know, user-centered design methodology is really focused on, is really, you know, just taking the whole environment, taking the human experience, taking the technology that's being put in place, and putting it all together, right? So, for example, we're going to be talking about uh, Senti AR, and that's an augmented reality uh, device used for um, uh, ablation surgery, uh, so or AFib. So, if you think about that, um, how does a computer, the human, and the environment mix in this sort of mixed reality world? And and where do those sort of uh, outliers intersect each other? And that's really how we kind of define the user-centered design methodology. And how does that work practically? When you start a design project, what are some of the first steps that you take going back to observation? Sure. So, well, I mean, that's a great question because uh, at the very beginning of a project, and we take we take on a lot of different projects from uh, startups to large cap, uh, you know, so depending on where they are in the process, uh, we need to either understand that they have a good concept of understanding of where um, sort of the, the environmental uh, play is, or we have to suggest that we go in. And, and we do that through what we call uh, contextual inquiry, which is really ethnography. So we'll basically go in and, and if it's a, a surgical situation, we'll sort of be the fly on the wall in the back, just watching how a surgeon and a circulating nurse and everybody works in the context of, a, of an operation and really seeing where the product that we're looking at focusing moves and migrates from, you know, whether it comes into the uh, OR and then it goes into the surgical field, does it, uh, how does it, how does the, the nurse and the surgeon and the patient interact with that object? And we really try to identify what we'll call insights or key uh, insights that we can take back and, and say, you know, if we were to redo this product or, or redesign it, what are the things that we can actually do to improve it, leapfrog it from the competitors or even just enhance usability, right? Um, and so from that point of view, we, we create what we call, um, well, the, the report of the contextual inquiry, most of the time turns into a, a user requirement document. So taking a step back, we are, we are um, a medical product, med tech product development firm, right? So everything we do is highly qualitative and, and you know, we have quality management systems. So 
we have specified uh, we have specifications for product requirements and user requirements. And so we need to really just kind of document those and say, what do we mean by you know uh, left-handed use versus right-handed use? Can you you know how how do we define that? When we get to that level, um, the designers and the the user experience designers and, and industrial designers they get together with the UN Factor Group, dissect sort of the problem, create these concepts, and then we go back in the field and actually show these concepts to the end users, whether it be the surgeons, the doctors, or the patients, and ask them which ones they like or which what what's what are the what are the things that they do or don't like about those products. And from that point, that's called the formative usability study in our in our world. And from that point, it's it's sort of a, a documented way to say how do we get here, right? So every time in a development path or a development cycle, you take different paths. And uh, one time in my career, you know, probably 10 years ago, we had a CEO come into uh, the office and he just said, well, how did we get here, right? And it was so comforting to just come back with a document and say, here you go, this is how, this is what the, you know, eight out of 10 people decided they wanted to have. This is how we verified it and, and moved forward. So it's that, almost like that justification, right? That it's, this is exactly how we got here. And it's because of our observations of our end users, ultimately. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and so the other challenge that we have, and this is where product design um, is a little bit more challenging, I would say, is that we also have to design for manufacturability. And in the end of the day, cost is going to come up, um, you know, designed for sustainability, um, you know, manufacturability, designed for manufacturing, designed for assembly, all these things come in, into play. So it's really a constraint, uh, a challenge of constraints of playing all these things in, in, in uh, deciding the hierarchy of, of the usability to the, the price point to, to all, you know, how do you get it manufactured? And so... What we do is is the engineers, the human factor, and the designers are extremely flat in our organization, uh, and they're all sort of part of that same team. So, so we understand the problem at the very base level. So, you're not going to run into that problem where a designer creates a design that they know can't be manufactured, and the engineer is not going to you know beat the designer up so much that the design loses its functionality and and. Maybe that's because the human factor element in the organization really is sort of woven in through the whole design process that we're doing those checkpoints of validation or at least verification of the end users along the way. So at the end of the, just to finalize that, at the end of the capstone, if you will, is the summative usability test is where once it's manufactured and, and sort of the end product, you take it out to the users and actually show it to them without really much explanation and say, can you use it? And, you know, if they fail to know how to use it or if they're making a lot of use errors, that's that's showing that you haven't really done your job. Yeah, we got something wrong in the design and we've got to go back and retool. We're going to see now how this process plays out with Senti AR. So tell us about this project. How did it come about? Sure. So Senti AR um, actually came out of uh, two individuals that were founders, uh, Jen and John Silva. And uh, Jen is an electrophysiologist, and uh, John was a, an engineer. And they, they basically teamed up with a, another person, uh, Mike Southward. They were the three founders. Uh, eventually, Burke Toss, the CEO, came on board.
But but the overall element that they did is is really trying to say how can we change the nature of um, AFib or arrhythmias? Uh, you know how how they do it. So in the current situation, if you will, you have these electrophysiologists that are are basically trying to find where how to ablate uh, a nerve that's gone rogue in the heart, right? Uh, so an irregular heartbeat. So they use uh, fluoroscopy. They use uh, electro anatomic mapping systems that uh, EGM and vital sign monitoring, all these things they're doing uh, are very, you know, displayed. If you ever go to a cath lab, you'll see all these monitors all around it. And they're all on flat screen TV or on, on monitors that are, are showing, you know, very faint images of a fluoroscopy x-ray or, or, you know, so it's very hard to kind of navigate in that space. So what, what, uh, what Jen did was, was really kind of uh, embraced augmented reality with the HoloLens and um, really took the, the whole system and, and was able to, to use the, 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 the actual technology from, from, from the uh, uh, electro-anatomical mapping systems and incorporate it into the HoloLens whereby you'll get a, um, a virtual, you'll get a hologram, if you will, a virtual hologram in, in your setting. So, uh, as opposed to VR, you know, augmented reality, you're, you're in the room you're, and you see other objects within that space, right? So they're able to basically build the heart wall as a hologram in front of you. So in front of the surgeon, they're seeing like this three-dimensional model of the heart in real time. With the, with the ablation catheter, sort of building the heart wall as they go through and kind of touch the, 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 the outer wall of the, the heart or the inner wall of the heart. So this so, has really changed surgery. Oh yeah. So this is this is uh, very cutting edge technology, and what what's really intriguing is that they got really far with this. Um, they are a software company, right? And they they use the hardware platform of the Hololens to, to communicate this. But with with um, augmented reality, there are really only three ways that you can manipulate the image. You can use voice control. You can gesture. They have all these sort of, you know, different gesturing commands. And then you could also use eye glaze, um, you know, just kind of where you move your eye, it'll actually track and, and you can uh, sort of segue into it. And so where they were at was they were really, you know, if you, if you think about an electrophysiologist or an EP, they're, they've got their hands busy with, with the catheters. They've got, you know, lead vests on because of the fluoro. Um, they're in a very noisy environment. So how do they basically use this? Uh, and so what we did is what we really helped with them was to take the, those three elements and really kind of play them out to say that, you know, gaze was ultimately going to be the best way to do it because you have free movement of your eyes and, and you don't have to lose your hand control. Yeah. And, too noisy in the OR with everybody else. You can't take your hands off of the device that's operating on someone. So you exactly. said, we've got to use the eyes. People have to control, surgeons have to control this with their vision. So the challenge with that was really that um, no one has really pushed forward the user interface in such a, a way to, to actually create that, that environment. So um, we really, for our job, it was really humanizing the software experience in that environment. So we did a lot of contextual inquiry where we sat and looked at how people were doing the project, you know, doing uh, ablation, you know, uh, as, as a standard treatment. We watched them with the HoloLens and, and talked to experts about how they would wear, what they would do with it. 
And then we really went back to the drawing board and started with very simple paper prototypes. We, we you know, we, we storyboarded and sketched different scenarios of, of how you would get from rotating the image to, uh, you know, uh, cutting through it and seeing half of the image or, you know, how you manipulate that image became very challenging. And so that at that certain point, we created animations, videos. And then from that point of view, we actually created uh, prototypes that were um, built into the AR, uh, the, the, the HoloLens experience, and we had them test them. And it was from that point of view that we really um, focused and refined the actual UI or the GUI elements of, of that, that this, the uh, screen inside the HoloLens to really create that, that perfect situation. Um, so it, it's it's really amazing if you if you ever got an opportunity to try it. Uh, it, it it's it's actually fairly simple. You can you can up and learn how to use it probably within ten minutes, and then you know you're on the, on the go. That's remarkable. Tell us about the impact first on surgeons who are using this, and what does it mean for patients? It's a great question, and I mean that's I think really where the Edison Award probably looked at it and, and graded it the highest. You know I don't have the exact statistics. But the, the amount of uh, people that have to go back for uh, ablation after they've gone through the first round of surgery is quite high. So I think there's like 40 million people living with uh, uh, cardiac arrhythmias. Um, so it's, 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 it's a big problem. And what, what they've done by being able to better visualize the, the actual heart wall, they're able to reduce the amount of uh, misplaced ablations um, and, and actually increase the, the uh, successful outcomes. From that point of view, for us, it was really rewarding just to see how meaningful it was to, to the community. We're a full-service product development firm. Uh, we're focused on user-centered design methodology. We have capabilities in, in research, design, UI, UX, um, mechanical, electrical, software, prototyping. And now with our recent uh, being acquired by Stereopack, we actually have the added capability of bringing our customers into manufacturing, molding, and contract manufacturing. So we can really go from concept to production in-house. Uh, so it's more of a holistic approach. And the fact that we're 1347, uh, I'm sorry, 1345 certified, which is basically the qualification for uh, medical standards, right? It was challenging for us to keep the innovation and keep the creativity within such a highly regulated space. But we we were, we were very quick to embrace the quality system and really made sure that our methodology and protocol worked with it as opposed to just sort of against it. And, and with that, you know, we've been highly successful in, in keeping that innovation to the point where it's not a detraction from, from a, you know, a, a lot of people, and I'll, I'll take a step back, a lot of people think, well, if it's med medical, highly re regulated, you, you're not going to have a lot of innovation. But but if you if you if you do it right and you you basically have the front end of the of the of the development highly innovative or, you know or highly uh, freed if you will to, to explore different ideas you can easily take those and bring them forward in, in a regulated environment. And what is it about your culture that allows you guys to do this so well? I think that that, that everybody that works here loves challenges and loves working on creating products. Right? We we love what we do. Um, the other thing is, I think the culture of the company is, it's, I think I mentioned before, we're very flat. So it's, it's everybody's empowered. Um, there's not one, we may have 
you know, 12 programs running here, but I think everybody here knows everything about every program, right? So it's not like we have little silos where one person's working on one project and the others. We have those disciplines, but everybody's sort of in a shared thing. So if there's a problem, there are people that have come to help. We're not, we're not really sort of putting people into um, spaces where they, they, they potentially could fail. So I think it, it's it's a uh, work hard, play hard, you know, and and have fun while we while we're at it. And what about you personally? I'm curious, what kinds of projects get you excited? I do like the challenging first of kind problems, the complex problems that have have a solution, right? There's some complex problems that are, are just you just can't you know you can't figure out world peace. So let's leave that off the table. But if you have a a complex problem with a lot of things moving on, like uh, uh, you know, a new product like Centiar, right? It's it's a new product invention that's coming in a traditional environment that's fairly complex on its own. And you're now, you're trying to figure out how to get that integrated into that system without disruption. Those are the key things and how to get, you know, the, the end users to actually want the product as opposed to have to use it. Uh, so so it's, it's really that sort of front-end strategy working with the clients to figure out how we can get uh, all these constraints into the right order to make it the perfect product or as perfect as it can be. So anything we haven't touched on yet that you think is important for our listeners to know? I don't know. We kind of touched on a lot. I, I, you know, I think from, from perspective of, uh, again, getting back to Edison award, uh, it, it's, we look forward to, uh, you know, uh, applying next year and, and uh, or actually this year now coming up. And uh, we have some pretty exciting things in the pipeline. So, just just excited about getting back into the post-COVID world and moving forward. Well, Tor, congratulations again to you and the HS design team for your Silver Edison Award and the great way, great work that you've done to move Centiar forward. Thanks so much, Jennifer. You've been listening to Inspiring Minds, powered by the Edison Awards, showcasing the leading innovators from across the globe. If you're interested in submitting a nomination for the Edison Awards, visit edisonawards.com. I'm Jennifer Trammell. Thank you for tuning in, and we look forward to having you join us for our next conversation with another inspiring innovator.